Good morning. Uh, my name is Felicia Orth. I am a sidekick to the forum chair. Uh, that's my husband, Evan Rose. My name is Felicia Orth. Uh, we're here this morning with a member of our congregation, Laurel Hardin. Laurel is a certified arborist and integrated pest management specialist. And she's going to talk to us about tree communication. Um, there will be an opportunity to ask questions at the end of her talk. Uh, so uh, try to remember them uh, as, she, as she talks. I'll take this. Okay. Good morning. Can everybody hear me okay? Great. All right. So first, the disclaimer. Uh, this is not actually my field of study. Um, it certainly applies to what I do. Uh, I work more uh, in urban forestry. So, uh, for instance, our trees out front are beautiful new trees, um, rather than with large-scale uh, forest ecology. But I'm really excited about a lot of the new research that's coming out of this, this field, and I think it's definitely worthwhile to, uh, to read some of the articles and, and catch up on what's going on. So the other disclaimer is, if you fall asleep, um, I, uh, I won't care. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Here we go. So certainly this talk could have easily been called plant intelligence, uh, tree communication, what the heck's going on that we're not aware of uh, with the plants. Um, so the things I'm going to talk about this morning, I'm going to talk about a little bit uh, popular culture. Um, there is a lot going on in popular culture with, with tree intelligence or plant intelligence, and I use those terms sort of um, interchangeably throughout the talk. Uh, what is the concept of plant intelligence? What does that actually mean? Um, the new discoveries, and that's in parentheses because really I think we have sort of inherently known these things to be true. Um, certainly, um, naturalists throughout history have observed um, things going on in the forest that we couldn't quite explain. So, new, um, maybe. And what, what does this have to do with us? All right, so these are the sources um, that I drew from um, back in... February, January or February, I read a New York uh, Times article on plant intelligence from uh, Peter Wolbin, uh, who is a, a German forest ecologist. And I was struck by how, in this article, he was talking about plant intelligence uh, very much as fact and that it was in the New York Times, as opposed to some of the other more non-mainline uh, publications I might read. So I was really excited that this concept was being just discussed, and that he had actual science to back up some of the claims he was making. So I was excited about that. So I read that back in February, and since then, uh, I've really just been reading a lot um, on this topic and being excited about it because it does apply to what I do uh, in urban forestry, working with your individual trees. The other great uh, uh, book, uh, this is Brilliant Green. Um, our library has a couple of copies of this. This is a very easy afternoon read. Uh, I love this book. Um, it has a, forward, a very short um, forward by Michael Pollan, 
And if you're not familiar with him, he wrote uh, Omnivore's Dilemma, um, Botany of Desire. And he's a science writer about food um, and plants, and it's very digestible, no pun intended. <laughs> but it's a, he's, a, he's a really interesting science writer, and, um, and his foreword in here is brilliant. I thought it's very brief, but concise and good, so please check out Brilliant Green. Um, and then an older documentary, uh, In the Mind of Plants, from 2009. This documentary actually has some pretty um, far-out stuff that has happened with plant communication, and I'll talk a little bit about that. So these are the sources. I also have these on a handout. <coughs> I'm waiting for everything to freeze so that I can stop having allergies. Um, I have this on a handout. If anybody actually wants to check out these resources, these are all free. You can, um, you can uh, find them online or at the library. So... Um, if you want that, just let me know afterwards. All right. Trees and poplar culture. There are so many. We are just basically obsessed with the idea that there is more going on with plants than we are aware of. Um, we make movies about it. We write books about it. We sneak it in there wherever we can. Um, of course, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. And as a child, the ints were like... I, I just, I wanted to be an int. That's my confession. <laughs> um, a little tiny intling. Um, and Narnia, those books were read to me when I was about five and really just captured my imagination. And there are dryads um, in Narnia. The, the trees actually do pick sides, and usually they're on the side of good. Uh, so uh, really we're, we have this sort of um, innate relationship with plants that comes out in popular culture and certainly with trees. We both admire them. Um, we might even fear them a little bit. They're, they're big. They're old. We don't really understand what's going on with them, but we're pretty much obsessed with them. So again, a couple of these are on my, on my handout if you want to watch some of these movies or read some of these books. Um, the Happening is on here. That is an M. Night Shyamalan movie that came out um, about 10 years ago. It's, um, I think it's classified actually as horror, um, but, <laughs> but it's actually, there, there's some really subtle concepts in there that are worth checking out. So um, I actually fell in love with Groot couple years ago when Guardians of the Galaxy came out. Uh, I'm a huge Groot fan. I don't know if he was actually in the original uh, um, comic book. I don't, I don't know if he was, but he is now, and he's awesome. And, of course, there's Narnia down in the, in the lower corner. Um, that's Lucy actually having a conversation with a tree. In Avatar, we have the Tree of Souls. And this is a really fascinating concept that all of the memories and the experiences of our ancestors can be stored in plant, in a plant form, in tree form, and, and then can later be accessed. Um, and I think that that's an interesting concept worth exploring because trees live a really long time, <laughs> much longer than we do. All right, so we're obsessed with them. We got that. But what is intelligence? How do we actually define intelligent? Um, does anybody here con consider your trees intelligent? Yeah. 
not so much. So what are the thing, what are the terms that we use when we define intelligence? Memory, certainly. Social behavior, how, um, how entities interact with other entities. Um, problem solving, awareness of the surrounding environment. Do any of you think that these apply to trees? Well, the science proves that they actually all do. Um, I put memory at the top because that was the one that sort of required the biggest intellectual hurdle for me. Um, I really, I had to, to learn more about that. But you're going to get some info here. All right, so facts that are often offered, offered up as proof that trees cannot be intelligent. Um, they don't move about. Uh, they don't get up and run away when you chop them down or cut off their branches. Um, they don't yell out when you cut off their branches. Um, and they certainly don't have brains or any real functional um, organ system in the way that we think of, of mammals, right? So if it doesn't have a brain, it can't possibly be intelligent, right? So Darwin actually suggested <laughs> that we rethink uh, how trees exist, and that we think of them um, as, as intelligent beings, but with the, the, the brain or the intelligent part being under the ground where we don't see it happening. Um, we like to say, oh yes, we see this and it means this is happening. But with plants, a lot of what's going on is under the ground, it's under the bark. Um, we don't always see sort of a cause and effect. Um, so some of the contemporaries um, of Darwin actually say this does trees and plants a disservice because their functioning systems are so much more complex and interesting that if we try to sort of equate them to uh, humans or, or mammal anatomy or functionality, that we're actually doing them a disservice because there's so much more going on that we don't even, we, we can't possibly understand. Almost um, uh, equated to like alien life form. Okay, so we can't really count them out just because we don't quite understand what's going on. All right, so the current science actually does confirm that plants are intelligent, that they actually are communicating um, but why is it still controversial? Well, nobody's hand went up when I asked you if you thought plants were intelligent, right? Because we simply do not think of them we, as intelligent beings. We don't, we don't conceptualize them as being entities capable of, of uh, intentional and purposeful thought and, and, and purpose. Pur so we don't think of them that way. So a lot of this has really, a lot of the research has come out within the last five years. Um, during the early 80s, there were three studies done um, that really were um, surprising on poplar, birch, uh, and willow, and how they interacted with each other. But the scientific community shot those studies down pretty quickly. They debunked them, saying, well, the, you know, the sample wasn't large enough, the plot study wasn't large enough, um, really the, the, you know, the, the scientific method wasn't accurate enough. So um, pretty much since about 1983, not a whole lot has happened until about five, seven years ago when the field really took off because a few sort of imaginative brave souls were able to say, hmm, I'm going to go back to what Darwin said 
and rethink this, or at least be willing to rethink it. So Michael Pollan offers up um, this as an idea as to why we don't, why it's still controversial. Um, It is only human arrogance and the fact that the lives of plants unfold in what amounts to a much slower dimension of time that keeps us from appreciating their intelligence. So this was sort of an eye-opener for me when I really started thinking about um, trees in particular and their lifespan uh, relative to ours. And that we move uh, in our landscape very quickly. We're, we're busy creatures. We're always doing stuff. We have somewhere to go. We have kids to chase after. We have lives that are happening. But plants and trees in particular live on a completely different dimension of time. So this is the oldest uh, um, living singular uh, tree in the world. Um, it's, uh, it's been named Methuselah. It lives in California. Its exact location is protected because, sadly, um, vandals could do it harm and probably would. Um, so this tree was already 1,500 years old when Plato was postulating that plant life could have a soul, trees in particular, um, are, they are alive, they, they have beginnings, middles, and ends. Um, so when I was thinking about this tree in terms of, of current events, it gave me a little perspective. Um, we live in such a, a brief blip, but trees can span centuries. So then I went a step further This is the Pando Aspen Grove in Utah. It's estimated to be about a million years old. I can't even really get my mind around what a million years ago. Um, uh, The earliest um, humans were just beginning to learn how to use fire. Um, It's a large, um, multi-trunked grove in Utah. Whereas Methuselah, or the bristlecone pine, is a singular entity, this is a massive um, hive-like uh, living structure. So it has multiple trunks that support a massive underground network of roots. Each trunk in this, in this uh, grove, uh, its purpose is to support the underground structure. They do not function as individuals. This is important because a lot of people want to plant aspens in their yard. But aspens are one of the most highly social tree species on the planet. They require a large network of support. And I'll get to that a little bit more later. So a million years, eh, give or take. All right, so they live a really long time. Does that actually mean they're intelligent? Not in of itself, no. Um, Are they actually doing something? Uh, yeah, they're doing a lot. All right, so these are some of the highlights of the research um, that is presented um, in uh, The Hidden Life of Trees, Brilliant Green. Um, and uh, oh, I didn't mention um, Suzanne Simard. She has an amazing TED Talk. She's a forest ecologist, and she talks a lot about these 
um, these concepts in her TED Talk. It's very worth watching. It's online. Please watch it. Um, And she talks about the science and how they came to these conclusions, which I don't have time to get into today. I'm sorry. But so trees actually allocate nutrients to their young and uh, other neighbors that are of their same species. So fur will give um, little baby fur some, some help, but then fur might also give spruce some help. So it might actually send CO2 or carbon to another life form that's not even related to it. Um, they can tell the difference. Uh, at the root level between relate relations and non-relations. So they can say, yes, this is my sapling, or no, that's not my sapling. Um, they can defend themselves uh, by emitting um, and VOCs. Those are volatile organic compounds. They can actually change the, um, the amount of compounds being released depending on what the attack or what the, what the threat actually is. And they can communicate through electrical impulses. So um, we have actually been able to observe this phenomenon, um, uh, watching, actually seeing electrical impulses being passed through a forest. It's a measurable phenomenon, and it's, and it's something we can, um, we can recreate very easily just by observing it with the right um, technology. So they also, and this is talked about a lot in... Um, uh, in the documentary I mentioned from 2009. Uh, in, in Africa a few years ago, there was a, uh, and I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly where, but there was a, a, a very localized drought um, that killed off a lot of vegetation. Um, and there were some large game reserves that, um, that raised kudu, so a large sort of um, deer-like animal. Um, but on some of the ranches, the kudu were dying, and they couldn't figure out why. Um, they had acacia, which is a, it's a staple diet for the kudu. Um, the kudu were eating the acacia. Nothing had changed. But then a very bright uh, ecologist said, why are only some of the kudu dying, and why on only some of the ranches? And he actually looked at the population numbers of the kudu and made the connection that on the ranches where populations exceeded survivability of the trees, the trees released enough tannins to kill off the kudu. So they actually, the trees actually assessed that there was a threat, that there were too many kudu, and made more tannins to reduce the mammal population. It didn't, inha- it didn't happen in all of the ranches, only in the ranches where the population of mammals was too high. Um, so... I don't know, that kind of seems intelligent to me. <laughs> you know, it was not indiscriminate. Not all of the trees um, did it. They only did it as needed. Um, and the trees warned each other that the kudu herds were moving through the release of ethylene gas so that trees could um, not just make a bunch of tannins, because that takes a lot of energy. So they would send out a plume of ethylene gas ahead of the herd so that the next trees down the, the way uh, could make tannins. And that also implied that the trees somehow understood which direction the herd was moving. I don't know. Seems a little smart to me. All right. Um, Trees can actually change the texture of their leaves and the palability of their leaves. So um, if an unwanted pest um, 
uh, say locust comes around, um, trees can change the texture so that they're less, uh, less digestible. Um, and they can warn their neighbors so the neighbors can do the same thing too, effectively uh, reducing um, the desirability of that particular tree buffet. And again, they can, they can emit um, vol volatile organic compounds um, specific to the insect that is attacking them. So they can change the compounds that they release uh, to affect the insect that's, that's munching on them, either to uh, reduce um, reproduction in that insect or change gut bacteria in that insect. Um, so they can be very specific with the way they respond. Um, they can also call helpful insects. And this is pretty cool to me, and it speaks a lot to uh, stop using pesticides as an indiscriminate sort of spray and pray um, philosophy, because given the chance, many trees will actually call beneficial insects to come and do their work for them. They will emit not volatile compounds, but pheromones or desirable um, attractants or lures to bring in the beneficials. And if you go in and try and spray, you might actually be getting in the way because there is stuff going on there. And then trees actually eavesdrop. Um, this is an interesting phenomenon. We don't really know what purpose this serves. Maybe it's just sort of like, hey, what's going on with that other species in the forest? Uh, is, there some, is there some benefit for me to figure out um, what's happening? But they actually will pick up electrical signals that are not meant for them, and who knows what they're doing with them. So if we start to think of trees more of doing this, so if you think about those little, those little bright blips as nutrients, so carbon, or information, uh, electrical impulses, um, tannins, there could be all different kinds of um, um, Information that's being sent back and forth, and it happens all the time. So it's, it's not, they don't wait around for an attack. Um, they're actually communicating in between um, times of stress when seemingly nothing is happening. So if we start thinking of it more like this, it might become a little bit easier to, to accept that there is some type of intelligence happening. The relationship with beneficial um, fungus is absolutely essential to the whole process. So um, the catalyst for moving information over long distances um, through a forest is actually um, uh, the fungus. So the mycorrhizae uh, that live in the forest um, facilitate both the movement of nutrients and information. So um, the comparison is made a lot uh, of like the internet. So the trees are using the fungus to transmit information along roots more quickly and efficiently. Um, there are millions of species of fungi in the forest floor, and they tend to be specific to the type of tree that is growing in any one area. So um, truffles is a good example. Truffles, um, uh, black truffle has one specific tree species uh, that it prefers. You can't take it and try and grow it on another tree species. So these relationships are highly specialized, and they, uh, they serve really sort of interesting and specific purposes. And, and it is postulated that, of course, if we didn't have, if trees didn't have this mycorrhizal relationship, that they just simply couldn't function. They wouldn't survive. 
Uh, they also um, aid with the uptake of water and nutrients. So they're, the mycorrhizae get some sort of life support system in exchange for helping the trees be able to use water, especially in drought conditions, more effectively. All right. So maybe we can think of it like this. Um, this, is, this has been out there for a few years. Uh, so if you cut off any one part of this, information has a hard time getting to the, to the whole, which we're going to talk about. So forests are comprised of, of um, hub trees, um, and that, that's, uh, um, or mother trees, as um, Suzanne Simard likes to refer to them. They're the largest, the oldest trees in the forest, um, the middle-aged trees, and then, of course, saplings. Now, this is dependent on species, um, but if too many of those hub trees are removed, so if we go in and we clear cut or there is a catastrophic fire um, or just poor forest management um, and we lose too many hub trees depending on species, um, often there is a decline in the forest. Um, now, there might have, obviously, if there's a clear cutting, the forest is gone. But if you just went in and you selectively took out the hub trees, the forest in general will decline. Well, why is that? Because hub trees are actually controlling the growth rate um, of all the other trees in the forest. So they allocate which trees are getting nutrients. Uh, they are our sources for where that information is being sent. So making sure that the information on that root-wide web is actually getting where it needs to go. Um, they are controlling population numbers. They can actually kill off saplings that are in the wrong location or are too thick in one area. And this allows for more light, even allocation of resources. But this is highly dependent on the hub trees being intact. So if you remove them, what happens? Well, all the middle-aged trees and the saplings go nuts. And they just start taking off and they grow really quickly. Um, they have a lot of flaws, so their wood is less able to resist pest attack. Um, and in terms of, of foresting um, or, or you know, lumber, um, hub trees are not desirable because they, they reduce the overall growth rate of the forest. So if you're, um, if you're a lumberjack, you want the forest to grow as quickly and as thickly as possible so you can come in and cut down the trees. But in a, in a forest that is regulated by hub trees, that growth rate is much slower and much more sustained. So unfortunately, we don't really honor hub trees. That's not something that, that our society does very well. And so we have forest management practices that don't allow for this natural balance to happen. So when we cut down too many hub trees, when we interrupt the root-wide web, um, uh, we essentially prevent the forest from functioning the way it was designed to function. All right. So there's just an illustration of, of a hub tree sending um, CO2 um, from itself to a smaller tree. Um, this happens through the entire forest, um, but it is selective. Um, sometimes hub trees will keep a tree um, alive that has been cut down. So they will keep the root of that stump alive. We don't really know why they would do that. There's no real obvious reason um, to keep a stump alive. But sometimes a hub tree will decide that that is an essential part of the forest and keep it alive. 
All right. So the trees that you choose are somewhat important. Um, uh, there are more social species, species that depend more heavily on, on others of their kind or on a forest with diversity. There are species that prefer to be, eh, they do fine on their own. So if we look out our window, we've got ponderosa. Ponderosa is not a highly social species. They can live, obviously, in a forest. But you can have one or two in your yard, and it will, they will function for um, you know, decades without having to be collect, um, uh, connected to a hub tree or the larger forest. So that's where I said it depends on, on species. Um, so oak, oak tends to be a loner. Cedar tends to be um, highly independent. So we don't see cedar interacting either with, with electrical impulses or, or sending CO2 um, to neighbors and friends. They're, they're more self-contained. Um, and then species that seem to be just more opportunistic. I could include um, spruce in there as well. So spruce and fir sometimes will pair up with willow and ash um, and birch and poplar, uh, depending on where they're growing and, and how they're planted. Um, and then there are some species that, man, you put this in your yard, <laughs> uh, uh, black walnut in particular and sycamore are the two that we have we do have around here. Um, black walnut actively reduces volatile compounds to kill everything else around it. You're not going to be growing any flower beds around black walnut. Um, it doesn't want any competition, even really from its own kind. So it's, it's not very friendly. So don't pl plant black walnut in your yard if you want a lot of diversity. Um, so understanding which species function as, as a group or, or sort of middle ground um, will help you choose um, to plant more, more better. So back to our aspen grove. So what does this tell us? How many of you have, have aspen in your yards? A couple of you have aspen. So aspen has a lot of problems. Um, they, they have oozing sometimes. They have leaf spots. They get tent caterpillars in the fall. Um, they don't live very long. Their, their trunks live about 30 years. Why is that? Well, they are a species that evolved to live socially. They need a large support network. They do not function well as individuals or as two or three trees in your backyard. You probably don't have, I think this is something like 42 square miles of, of space in your backyard for your aspens to, you know, to grow a bunch of trunks and create this vast underground network. So aspens are beautiful. Let them have space. Don't put them in your yard. Don't choose that tree unless your objective is to have little saplings coming up in your yard, in your grass, um, you know, through your sidewalk, because this is how they were designed. They, they prefer to be together. They're pretty codependent. All right. So moving about. Trees actually do move. Um, uh, we just, again, we move so much quicker, we tend to not notice um, there has been time-lapse photos uh, um, or video of roots growing um, going back to the 70s. Um, again, a lot of debunked sort of college basement, university basement um, studies done on this. But we can actually witness with technology uh, plants moving with intention. 
What's fascinating about the new research, though, is that um, because plants don't have specific organs like we do, um, if you observe this, you might think, oh, well, it's just that whole root is just going towards water or it's just going towards the nutrients. But if we cut the tip of the root off and then try to observe it, the root just grows in a straight line. It loses its intention, implying that there actually are more, there are some specific functioning um, organs that we quite don't understand yet. Um, so, again, watch the, um, watch the documentary from 2009. There's some excellent video uh, illustrating this phenomenon and how roots actually move with purpose um, and how that can be interrupted if we cut them. So, again, going back to forest management or management in your own yards, don't go and indiscriminately cut down roots um, because you're actually affecting um, a, a functioning organ, essentially, of the tree. Um, all right. And, of course, um, trees do, um, they can move depending on where the light is. Um, they go up or down. They know which way is up. So the top is what's actually going on, and the bottom is what we see. So the trees are like, yes, there's our saplings. Woo! We're like, oh, look at those trees over there. So this is the one that made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. <laughs> um, this is actually, this has been proven that it's more than just a dormant period. You cannot grow trees in 24 hours of light. Well, why? Um, you know, we certainly know that you can grow giant cabbages in Alaska um, in the summertime. Um, that's, that's beneficial, right? You get um, certain uh, newer crops uh, are grown under light, forcing them to flower, um, right? Well, trees in particular require darkness, and they actually do have a state of semi-dormancy during darkness. So systems slow down, the process slows down, CO2 um, exchange um, is usually halted at this time. So they are actually and essentially resting. Um, we don't really know why, because there's no brain, there's no evidence that they're dreaming. I've never seen a tree like twitching in a dream, like running away from the arborist, but they actually require dormancy. They need to just be doing nothing for a period of time. Um, and the, the day length affects how healthy they are as well. So um, during this time of year, senescence um, has, has already happened, and, um, and so the trees are... Uh, are preparing for the long sleep, which most of them also require. All right, so trees actually do remember. Um, and like I said earlier, this one really took sort of the intellectual hurdle for me, because I'm like, how do you remember anything if you don't have a brain to store information, right? Well, um, the dancing plants uh, is actually an example of a plant that... Um, seems to remember with intention. So music is played for this plant, Actual physical music played. Now, they don't have ears. They can't hear this music. At first, they'll just wiggle a little bit. They'll sort of like do a little hi-fi. But after a while of being 
repeatedly exposed to music, and it doesn't need to be the same kind or type of music, they respond to it more readily. So that implies that somewhere they are able to store that information, recall it, and then use it to react. So that is essentially what memory is. Um, and of course, you know, trees like black walnut, they'll actually kill off rival species, but then maybe they'll decide on another time that they want to work together. And that implies that they have the ability to decide, use that term loosely, whether or not that relationship is going to be beneficial at some point down the road. Say, I'm going to give you CO2 now, but later when the sun angle changes, you're going to give me CO2 because I'm not photosynthesizing as readily. That implies a relationship that's more than just sort of um, established or adaptive. All right, so certainly um, technology is playing a big role because as technology improves, we're able to, um, to observe these plant behaviors more easily. Our human eyes aren't very well adapted to, um, to witnessing plants communicating. Um, and our brains maybe work very differently, um, but I think that it's definitely a, a worth keeping up on because the information is always changing. All right, so how does this relate to me? Please, please, please put the right tree in the right place. Um, if you don't know, hire an arborist. We'll be happy to tell you what the right tree is. Remember, don't plant aspens in your yard. Avoid those walnuts. Um, choose trees that sort of work in the middle ground. Um, you'll be happier with the selection in the long run. Um, whenever the opportunity arises, please support legislation um, that benefits um, responsible forest management. Again, I'm not, um, I'm not a forester, um, but if the opportunity arises to say, yes, we want, you know, we want this versus this, um, participate as you can. We need to preserve our oldest and largest trees. They are, um, uh, they're, they're serving a very real purpose in our forest. They're helping us. We need to stop cutting them down. Just go outside. We have some of the most amazing forests literally right out our back doors. Um, just spending a little time and thinking about some of these highlights that you've heard today um, might give you some insight into, well, what's happening? Um, and, uh, and see if you can find the codependent species or the loner species. Um, there, is, there are some bristlecone pine um, up by Sipapu. Um, you might have to do some hiking, but they are there, and it's worth going to see. Just plant trees. Lots and lots of trees, but not aspens. All right. Questions? And I'll be happy to answer questions um, in uh, the other room at length. Okay. Um, I don't really have a question. I want to make a comment um, supporting what you said. I once gave a talk entitled, Why Don't the Woods Die When It Doesn't Rain for Three Months? Uh, we all know that plants require water to live, and it's this underground transfer of everything, including water, from one plant to another, to the fungi, or some, 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 some. And there's much more die-off in areas where roads have been put through because the, they, that severs the connection uh, of, that goes on 
And so you're going to have much more survival in areas with no roads. That's right, yeah. And the the forest will live uh, with no rain for three months if you don't do all these things to it. Yeah, if we just sort of get out of the way. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. I often see decline in in people's yard trees after they have put in sidewalks or, or new driveway. Um, and not anticipating that they're, they're actually doing some major underground damage. Carl. I'm wondering about them informing about human relationships uh, between compassion and hostility. Do we have hub individuals, hub in literature, hub scientists? <laughs> uh, I think uh, Suzanne Simard um, actually addresses that in her TED Talk. And, uh, yeah, I think you should watch it. Uh, one question. I've heard people saying that their house plants do so well because they talk to them. Have you heard any research on this? Yeah, so um, actually there was an extensive, and, and they could actually replicate the study that if you play heavy metal music to plants, they die. <laughs> uh, but if you play classical, they actually thrive. So that sort of lends itself to maybe if we speak to our plants in a loving, kind tone versus coming in there, you're a bad plant, uh, you might actually see some, you know, it's not just how we talk or what we, you know, that we are, but how we're doing it. Um, I have two questions. <clears throat> One, of, I own three acres of Pinion Juniper Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to what extent are those two, two species dependent on each other to what extent are they rivals? Second question, I have about 10,000 square feet of driveway, one place or another on this, which I have kept in gravel rather than paving it. Is that important? Yeah, absolutely. So the second question first, um, if, you're, if you're given the option to use gravel or permeable um, surface, always choose that. Um, trees don't like hardscaping, so good choice there. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention um, pinyon and juniper in my talk. Um, uh, Pinyon is highly singular, so they they don't tend to have a lot of crosstalk with other species, but often with themselves or with their immediate trees that are very close to them. Um, uh, Juniper is almost insular. It it doesn't seem to communicate at all with either its own species or other species. And um, that's true of most of the juniper and cedar families. One more more question. (laughs) In in talking and listening of plants, we're using a lot of metaphors. Are the experts... developing a more precise language. They are. So again, because this is not my field of study, I, I don't have a lot of the specific language. Um, but if you read uh, The Hidden Life of Trees, you're going to get some very good specifics and descriptive terms on, on, this, on these phenomenons that we're witnessing. Yeah. So given the inherent worth and dignity of all trees, <laughs> yes, <laughs> can we actually plant aspen under proper management? Uh, you can, but it's also about managing expectation. Um, so ex- uh, aspen have a lot of inherent issues, um, and if you are willing to understand what those are and deal with them, then yes. Um, but in general, um, as an arborist, I recommend we choose our tree species that we have developed um, to live with us. 
So we have hybrids that perform the way we want them to. Um, and generally, I will recommend you choose one of those versus a native or wild species for your backyard. Thank you so much, Laurel. That was terrific. Thanks, guys. So lovely to see you all. <laughs>